0: We've got a fascination with founders in our culture, people who start stuff. Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates. I've had a new generation of founders here in Fort Knox. Stitch Fix founder Katrina Lake and Guild Education founder Rachel Carlson, to name a couple. This week, we're gonna dig into what successful founders do right and what we can all learn from them. Basically, hey, the, the way I look at it, even if you're not starting the next Apple, chances are pretty good that a lot of us have started something or will before too long. Maybe it's a small business, a major project on your job. Welcome to Fort Knox. I'm CNBC's John Fort at the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York's Times Square. My guests, CNBC wealth editor Robert Frank, who has chronicled the ways of successful entrepreneurs for many years now, and the irrepressible Scott Galloway, professor at NYU's Stern School of Business, author of New York Times bestseller The Four, which examines the animating ideas behind Apple, Google, Facebook, and Amazon. And I hear you've got a new podcast that's uh, due out before long.
1: Yeah, thanks for bringing it up. I'm co-hosting with Kara Swisher on the Vox Network a podcast called Pivot. Although I wanted to call it Stable Genius, but it
0: got overruled. <laughs> that might have been false advertising. <laughs> yeah, In case for
1: you too. On both counts. I
0: mean, no, uh, just one count. Uh, you're also you started some stuff. Yeah,
1: started a bunch of companies. And I think we have a tendency to romanticize entrepreneurs. I would argue the majority of entrepreneurs, it's a defense mechanism. I learned early after a stint at Morgan Stanley that I just. Couldn't thrive and succeed in the corporate world. So for me, entrepreneurship was a defense mechanism. But talking about entrepreneurs, you know, grit, excellence, hold their people accountable. But I think more than anything in an information age, they have got to be great storytellers to attract cheap capital that gives them the ability to make mistakes, get traction. If you look at the people, all the names you talked about, You listen to them speak and you just wanna buy
0: stock. And speaking of storytelling, this week on Fort Knox, for the one-on-one, I've also got Maynard Webb. He's a former board chairman at Yahoo, former CEO of LiveOps, chief operating officer at eBay, board member at Visa and Salesforce, and he just wrote a book, Dear Founder, which is structured as advice, just, hey, on all kinds of little issues from setting up the company to dealing with people to when the board wants to can you, Uh, issues that apparently founders have to deal with. Robert, now, Robert, you um, are our go-to guy on success, Mm -hmm. successful people. You're the wealth editor. You've looked not just at how much money these folks have, but also what got them there. So sometimes it seems like overnight success for people. Like The the first thing they start works. Is that usually the case or is there some characteristic of stick-to-itiveness?
2: Yeah, there's definitely, a lot of the entrepreneurs I've talked to said I was an overnight success after 20 years. (laughs) Um, And so uh, I would agree with Scott that storytelling is really important and how to deal with people is important. I have three things that I've discovered are really important and they are not the usual things that people say, which is hard work, focus, and find your passion. That's what they say. None of those are true. As far as I, are I, they I, false
0: or are they just not the main things? They're not the main things. Okay. So
2: the main things, the first is ignorance, right? Yeah. So the guys who come into a market, and the reason that Jeff Bezos reinvented retailing is because he didn't start out at Macy's. Hmm. The reason that uh, Elon Musk has reinvented cars is because he didn't start at GM. So all these guys tell me the best thing they brought to reinventing their industry and starting a brand new disruptor was they didn't know what couldn't be done in that industry. So ignorance is number one. Yeah,
1: too stupid to know you're gonna fail. Exactly, yeah. and,
2: and again, not knowing well, but there's that problem and this, so you really have to rethink an industry and the best way to do that is to not know anything about it. Hmm. The second thing is just almost an obsessive personality that, that when you have an idea and you see the vision for that idea, everyone will tell you that it's the wrong idea. Everyone in the beginning will say, that can't work, that won't work, that's stupid. If they tell you the opposite, you know it's not gonna be a winning idea. Because The the best idea is whether it's Fred Smith at FedEx or Elon Musk, because again, to to really make it, you have to be the guy that changes an entire industry. Hmm. And so that ability to, you know, uh, Scott mentioned grit, that's part of it, but almost, I mean, these guys are almost obsessive compulsive personalities. When they get onto something, they just can't let it go. To the, to the sacrifice of their health, their families, everything on earth, they are going to stick to that idea, whether it succeeds or fails. Huh. Um, and, and then, you know, the last thing I think is. Um, I was waiting on the last thing. <laughs> <laughs> the last thing I think is just a lot of these people, everything they look at, they, they try to figure out how you could do it differently. So, you know, you sit down with these guys and you'll start talking about, you know, our business. And they'll start saying, well, what if you did that? What if you did? So everything, whether it's a coffee cup or whether it's whatever you're doing, they are always looking for a different way to do it or to see it. And th- there are just some people that are, are naturally like that. They're like, yeah. how else could you do
0: this? Hmm. Scott Galloway, t- tell us the story of Red Envelope. Because mm-hmm. I uh, knew of the company before I knew you. Yep. Um, and I... How, how did that come about? I mean, I take it you never worked for Hallmark.
1: No, a lot of what you said is true. If, if, if the business made perfect sense when it was started, it would already be there. Someone else would already be doing it. So it was the 90s. I've always thought that uh, you know, any success that I've registered has been a function of luck and geography, and I came at professional age in the best zip code in the world where there was more wealth created within a seven mile radius of SFO in the 90s than to that point all of Europe since World War II. And I started a consulting firm, was was consulting to e-commerce and retailers, and got intoxicated with the Internet. Had a shaved head, a good rap, could raise a lot of money in, in the 90s and started an e-commerce company. And it was, I've never had a business plan. I thought, okay, the Internet, I went to a conference with John Doerr. He said the Internet's all about saving time. The only people on the Internet at that time was dudes. Right? Dudes save time, gifts, a database that matches people, occasion, with the right gift, went out, raised about 60 or $80 million in launch red envelope. And I thought there was an opportunity to be, I'm a big fan of benchmarks, to be the more urban, hipper, more, if you will, kind of erotic version of Tiffany. So lower price point, more aggressive, more aggressive sort of urban, I don't wanna call it sexual, but provocative advertising and be, be the urban version, of the younger version of Tiffany and do it online. And because we chose the internet as a channel, we could go raise a lot of capital.
0: And so were you right?
1: Uh, for a while. Um, it was a great experience. Some people made some money, but in the end, when the credit crisis hit in 2008, I also think Amazon was out there, the cost of keywords, the cost for bidding on Mother's Day gift when we launched was X. Within eight years, it was 8X mm. because of all the other players with cheaper capital coming in. Ultimately, the company went through a reorganization, was sold to Liberty Media. Um, I, this was one of those companies, a longer story. I think the board screwed up this company. I was, both, I was an angry founder. I was literally the kind of the, the cliche of an angry, destructive founder. Our venture capitalists were um, uh, awful at retail, yet vindictive. I mean, it, just, it, was like, <laughs> it was the perfect storm of bad things. So, no, it didn't, it didn't end well.
2: Well, and, that, and that's another good point. You know, you look at someone like Fred Smith, who was a founder and one of the great operating CEOs. And then you look at Uber and Travis, and you, you know, to Scott's point, he was an angry founder, but the skills of being a founder, which are very eccentric and peculiar and often grading on people, you think of... of, of <laughs> <Thanks> <laughs> not that I you're grading, not that sure you're grading. I'm talking but, about but, you. But, but, no, no, but, you're, but I think you have all the qualities of both, uh, an operator and a founder, but, but those qualities often don't translate into being the sort of... Calm, large scale manager of people yeah. that you then need to do. So it's really, I think people underestimate how difficult it is and how rare it is for Mark Zuckerberg, Larry, and Sergey, and some of these guys at Bezos to, to have that sort of incredible vision and energy and disregard for other people. Mm-hmm. You have to have a complete disregard for everybody because you know you're right. And then all of a sudden, the switch flips and you're suddenly the guy that has to work into these huge teams and manages. So, so it's, it's really difficult and I think, I, I'm surprised often how, how common it is for some of these big companies that they did make that transition.
0: Yeah, you, you mentioned the importance of people. Again, this is uh, Fort Knox, I am John Fort. We're talking about what makes successful founders special. What makes them different? What makes them tick? Talk to Maynard Webb about exactly this question in his book, Dear Founder. Um, What is the thing that so many founders get wrong that he needed to give them advice about? He said, dealing with people. Take a listen.
3: I think people and culture, two things. Everything's about people at the end of the day, no matter how great an idea and how good a strategy you have, you still have to have people to carry it off and finding the right people right. and motivating and inspiring them is important. And then on the culture side, I think you, either, you have a culture whether you know it or not. Scott, did you think about
0: culture much when you were- Not as a young man
1: and no. it's, it's an interesting thing that I would say the area I've tried to develop most is I think the key to successful leadership in corporate America or really in any environment is empathy. And hmm. that is to Maynard's um, point-
0: And empathy doesn't mean being nice.
1: No, it it means putting yourself in the shoes so the team of the best players wins. So your ability to get cheap capital and also attract and retain the best employees is central. Greatness is achieved in the agency of others, full stop. And so as a younger man, I thought, Everyone must be like me. My goals, and this sounds crass, is I wanted to be ridiculously wealthy and just generally awesome. That, and I thought, that's everyone else's goal. Sounds pretty, is but it not? What you find is individuals and companies are individuals and they have different priorities. Some are willing to work nights and on weekends, but need to be at Little League. Some people want to manage others. Some people want to develop a profile and be in the media lot. And your ability as a leader to say, I'm going to figure this out, John. I'm going to figure out what's important to you. I'm going to put myself in your shoes. And even if those things aren't important to me, I'm going to work with you to make you win. And having a sense, a real sense of believable empathy for people.
2: I, 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 w- I think that's true often. I'm, I'm amazed, having read the Bezos biography and, of course, the Steve Jobs biography before that, how successful they were Without, without that. Without that, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, I mean, it's, you read about some of the meetings that Bezos has. And, you know, he's, he's comp- very blunt about it. Sorry, I didn't take my stupid pill today. I didn't get what you just said. I mean, it, it's just shooting people down. And yet, here he is. So, so I think. And that's know, what
0: I meant by it doesn't mean being nice. Because at the same time, he and Amazon have this reputation for caring intensely about what the customer wants.
2: Yeah, that's so right. So maybe
0: even if it's not empathy for yeah. the people he's working with, that's right. he can create this culture around empathy for the customer. Yeah. And maybe that's I'm a great rude point. to you, but we both care about really serving that customer and figuring out, even through tiny signals, what they really care about.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. I think it's right. Less about empathy, more the ability to imagine what the customer wants. And and that's what Bezos has been great. There's another thing, maybe a fourth thing how often do you sleep? How many hours a night do you sleep?
1: Yeah, I'm not one of these guys that sleeps four hours. I'm a night person, I sleep kind of one to eight, so I get a solid seven, which is, okay. I mean, you know, I'm, I, I'm 85 and it's because I sleep a lot. <laughs> I mean, look at me guys. No, I'm not, I'm not one of these people that doesn't need sleep. But, need but sleep. it is
2: amazing how many of the founders I talk to, and, and some of it, just, they, there's this urgency of, there's not much time in this world. I have so much I plan, want to get done
0: did I mean, Bezos just say he sleeps like seven hours a he, night? He though? does
2: too. And it yeah. was surprising because a lot of the guys I talk to, it's just, it's three to four hours. And and you just think about, that's an extra three to four hours a day that you can <laughs> and, and, and they function, I don't know how, but but they do, and you think about over your lifetime how much productivity you can get with the 3 or 4 extra hours or a or how
0: day. many tweets you can send yes.
2: maybe
1: <laughs> <in the laughs> yeah, extra true. Right. maybe should exactly. get more sleep <laughs> you one of the things i think we've left out of the conversation is the thing that separates entrepreneurs from other people it's just an incredible endurance or ability to absorb risk hmm. because the difference between a founder and employees is founders write the sign the front of checks employees sign the back right and I know a lot of people, that think of themselves as founders, but would never in a million years think about actually taking their own money. This is what you do as an entrepreneur. The first two years, my company, L2, I worked pretty much 12 to 14 hours a day, such that every, every January or every beginning of every month, I could write a check for 10 dollars to $50,000 to, to the company. So I paid to go to work. Most people would never dream of doing that. Wait, I don't yeah. get paid? Right. So your ability to absorb that risk, you want to be an entrepreneur, imagine borrowing money from everyone you know, including your parents, your wife's parents, and then losing it all. Congratulations, mm-hmm. you're an entrepreneur.
0: Robert, uh, there are different ways that different types of founders and entrepreneurs rationalize that risk, yeah. I guess. Mark Zuckerberg grew up uh, upper middle class in, um, I guess, north of New York, his right. dad was a dentist, you know, risk, I guess, meant something different to him. It meant dropping out of Harvard, right. but probably there was a safety net there. Right. Uh, Steve I'm- Jobs, different profile. Yeah. Um, Katrina Lake, different profile. Uh, how, how much do the circumstances in which uh, an entrepreneur uh, grows up or finds themselves factor into, you think, their appetite for risk?
2: Yeah, less than we think. And I think the, the key to risk, and I agree with Scott that, that there has to be the sense that everything I have is going into this company and I'm not, I'm not seeking a paycheck immediately. But where, the, where you and I would see risk in, in, the, in a sense of maybe gamblers, where I'm going to take a bet on this, they don't see risk at all. To them, there is no risk because they so clearly see the future of their business and the potential for that market and sometimes they're wrong. Hmm. We never hear about all the failures, the, the, the eight out of 10 failures that mm-hmm. don't become billionaires. But they, to them, it's not a risk, because to them, they they see it so clearly and the execution of that is so cut and dry that it's just a matter of, of getting through the first period where you're profitable and you can start paying people. So I don't see, they, they see it as I could lose everything, uh, but I'm just gonna, you know, put the put the ball in the roulette and spin the wheel. But what about
0: the ones who have basically lost everything already? Uh, previously at other ventures that didn't work out, but somehow right. manage to throw their head back in the ring and convince themselves again that this time it's going to work. You notice anything about the psychology of that person who, despite the evidence of their own entrepreneurial ability, what the market says, all that stuff, they still manage to start something that eventually succeeds? Well,
2: and I'm curious, Scott, that one of the ingredients to success that everyone talks about now is failure. You know, if this guy has failed three times, All he's right. fantastic because he's learned All those right. lessons that, that, I mean, do you agree with that? And, and what is it about those people that can, continues to re-up? Or do they, do they say, maybe it's me, maybe I shouldn't be? Yeah, it's a bit of an exaggeration yeah. because
1: I think in America, I don't think, we, they, they say we embrace failure. We don't embrace failure, we tolerate it. Hmm. And I think success in, in your private, in your, in your core professional life, and also in your personal life, is a function of your resilience. Yeah, everyone faces failure. Everyone gets fired. Everyone loses people they love. Everyone faces injustice at some point in the corporate world. And your ability to mourn and then move on is a key ingredient to success. I've started nine companies. I think I'm generously three, four, and two. And I've been beamed in the face. The company you talk about, Red Envelope, mm-hmm. I was kicked off the board. Of the, you know, I was kicked out of the band I started. <laughs> It was a really difficult time for me. I learned from it, I moved on, and then I got back to the plate and, and swung harder. But it's kind of and a badge of honor, right? Once you've... It doesn't hurt you. I'd say in the U.S. it doesn't. You don't have a scarlet letter like I would argue you have in Europe and other yes, societies where true. if you fail, you're that's done. True. You can recover. Some people claim they like it. It's a bit of a... An exaggeration to say Americans, we embrace failure as long as it's on the way to success and there's indications you're going to be successful. Right, that's true. But it's that great graph, and you showed it out. People, this is what people think success looks like. This is what success looks like, right? Scott,
0: how much of it is being able to uh, kind of snatch? in a way, victory from the jaws of defeat, or or create little victories, even when overall you didn't cross the finish line that people expected you to cross. You're able to say, okay, well, maybe it didn't work out uh, overall, but I learned this, and I can use this in this way, and this really worked well, and so if I get back out there, and I do this, this, and this, but not that, I can succeed next time, being able to convince yourself that there was success in there somewhere.
1: So, uh, 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 you know, so many components that go into the soup of success. But one of them with successful companies typically is agility. Google did not start out as a search engine. Very few companies end up finding success where they had initially envisioned. The company I had started L2 that we just sold, to Gartner, was originally going to be an events company. And then we ended up being, you know, benchmarking digital competence because you have to be in a position where you face the enemy, you see what happens... And then you, you adjust, you pivot, you, pivot, you adjust, <laughs> and you go, after, you go after where the money is. And everyone says it's a relentless focus, never give up. Sure, give up. If this isn't working, yeah. try something else. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and there's a balance between that and perseverance. But your ability, uh, I mean, I would argue Facebook's the most agile company in the world. 7% of their revenue on the IPO from mobile. They got it wrong. He did not think that it was going to be an app economy. He was wrong and said, I'm clearly wrong. Boom. And now it's, what is it, 94%? From mobile, so agility, very few successful businesses started out, uh, ended up where they started out.
0: Robert, um, w- when you look at the outside of money and being awesome, the mm-hmm. things that right. animate uh, and, and motivate founders, how much of it is the impact they want to have in the world? Mark Benioff, founder of Salesforce has just bought Time Magazine. Right. Uh, he built in the structure into Salesforce at its founding where a certain percentage uh, of, of their profit was gonna end up going to, um, to charity. How, how common is well, that mindset? There,
2: there's the rhetoric, which is everyone says they're not doing it for the money, right? right? Everyone's Silicon Valley, we are doing it today. Cha- there's that great line from the Silicon Valley, the TV show where the Sergey Brin character says, I don't wanna live in a world where another company is changing the world. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> which, right. which is which is really that's the honest truth, and so, so it, let us get back to basics. It really is about money because I money agree. is the measure. I agree. Um, not maybe not the measure, but but certainly one of the top two.
0: It's easier so to change the world when you got a bunch when of you them. got a lot of money. Yeah yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. And one of the myths that you brought up. I, there is no shortage of people, of billionaires that come to NYU Stern to speak at students and they typically end with follow your passion, yeah. which I think is total BS, because it's typically a guy who made his money starting a software as a service application for healthcare maintenance. <laughs> and it's, okay, that was your passion. At five years old, that's what I wanted to do. And I always remind people, anyone who tells you to follow your passion is already rich. <laughs> Find something you're good at and then the accoutrements of becoming great at it will make you passionate about whatever it is.
2: And anybody who says it's not about the money is usually already rich as well. <laughs> That's right. uh, so so I, do think, I do think money is a big motivator. Um, not so much for the money's sake, but for, for the things it allows you, the impact it allows you to have. And, um, then, I so think, and then I think after that, um, it's, it's not so much making the world a better place, but it's, it's some kind of definable impact that will outlive you. Um, you know, Steve Jobs said, I want to, to create a company that will continue to exist and grow far beyond my lifetime. And I think he's done that to a degree where even he couldn't have imagined. Um, so, so I think it's just that, that long, longing for eternal life of some kind, whether it's through a company, a brand, um, you know, a great piece of art for artists, but, but the corporate equivalent of that, something that will live on and be admired for, for hundreds of years.
0: That's a great note to close this portion of the conversation. Uh, Robert, Scott, thanks. Um, From here, Maynard Webb. He wrote the book, Dear Founder. He is the Fort Knox one-on-one this week. Uh, As the podcast continues, you can catch that. Maynard Webb, thank you for sitting down for Fort Knox. You've got this new book your founder letters of advice for anyone who leads manages, or wants to start a business and it's literally written like letters
3: to yep. a founder where did the idea come from i have to credit my son for the idea he had read first of all thank you for having me on the show john love being here and i have to credit my son for the idea he had read a medium post that was about a father who was dying turns out it was fake but he he wrote his son a bunch of letters about every stage of his life because he wasn't going to be there. Hmm. So the first time your mom's mad at you, open this letter. Remember, she's going through a tough time, too. When you have your first date, here's how I want you to behave. When you're getting married, the last one was, when you're about to die and you open the letter and it says, I, I hope you're old <laughs> and I'll see you soon. Um, but the point was, We run into this with our companies all the time. And you know, I've had a long career and people have been really good to me in my career. And I've learned a lot. So I spend all my time trying to give back now. And we have founders that are thrilled that we're around to give advice. And I have 90 people that invest by my side, but they get connected and they get the advice. But the other 99 companies we have in our portfolio don't hear that advice so we decided that we could codify some of this advice in this letter format based on the stage of the company you're in Um, and sometimes when you're a baby company you don't need to hear about being a legacy company because it's too soon and sometimes when you're a legacy company the stuff that happens at the beginning of the book isn't that happy so we wrote it so that you could go anytime anywhere to whatever section you need to get actionable advice.
0: Now, you've been uh, in leadership positions at LiveOps, at eBay as chief operating officer, you're chairman of Yahoo, you've been on the board at Visa, at, I mean, I I could name a a bunch of places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, lots. Um, Over all that period of time, what do you think are the things that leaders, that founders miss the most where, where they could say, oh, if I could go
3: back and do differently at this, here's what it would be. I think people and culture, two things. Huh. Everything's about people at the end of the day. No matter how great an idea and how good a strategy you have, you still have to have people to carry it off. And finding the right people right. and motivating and inspiring them is important. And then on the culture side, I think you, either, you have a culture whether you know it or not. And so paying attention to it from the beginning is really important.
0: And you think most founders tend to not pay as much attention to those things as they should? Or
3: or they pay attention to things they think matter, like free food and not as much to how you treat somebody. And when somebody comes in, how do you welcome the first salesperson instead of harangue them that they're not engineers? Or hmm. how do you treat diversity and make sure that you tackle that from the beginning instead of once you're like 50 or 100 people.
0: Are, are these things where founders tend to think, well, I just kind of assumed that this would um, emanate out from me because I care about it,
3: even though I never really talked well, about some it that of them, much. Or some of them care and some of them don't care. like, okay. well, it's not that they don't care, but they're like, frankly, when you're starting a company, If you try to do everything everybody thinks you should do as a CEO, you'll do nothing. And you better make a product that somebody wants or nobody is gonna be around. Mm. So they're pretty maniacally focused on building. Um, And they don't often understand, some of them do from the beginning, that they wanna build it with all these good things in, but often they don't realize that they have to do it. Many of them haven't been managers or leaders before so it's a pretty tough job to go now i'm the ceo now i have a board how do i manage them how do i manage my employees how do i handle all of this some i had is it okay if i tell a story sure so i had a um i had uh, some people that went on to do great things but they came to see me early on when they had like seven people and where, what position
0: were you in when they came
3: to see you? Uh, oh, no, I'm an investor an investor, and, okay. and, uh, and advisor. Uh-huh. And <clears throat> I made a special arrangements to see them in between a, a big Yahoo meeting and a Salesforce board meeting. And they <laughs> came and they said, we have a big problem. I'm like, OK, lay it on me. And they go, we have this person who's really bad that we need to fire, but we are worried that if we fire him, people will be upset because his dog everybody loves, and he's a culture carrier. I'm like, really? Uh, mm. And they said, "Yeah, really, we were really weird. I mean, it's easy. Fire him, keep the dog but, no. <laughs> but but no, honestly, you have to find a way to let it go and explain to people what's going on. They've since grown to be you know several hundred people, and they're fine, but that was they didn't even know how to address a performance problem, which is pretty pretty interesting. So you have those sort of experiences that people are learning how to do, and they have to build a product and they have to make everybody happy
0: yeah um, I, I'm fascinated by the jumps in people's resumes and th- there's one in yours you went to Florida Atlantic University yeah for a degree in criminal justice absolutely and then after you graduated you worked as a security guard at IBM <laughs> yeah uh wh- what year was that, that and was then heart- what did heart- you well, do in between <laughs> That <laughs> and, and all and the And managing a technology yeah, yeah, yeah. company. Well, yeah.
3: I, I had been appointed to Annapolis and didn't go out of high school, which drove my mom crazy. Why didn't you go? Um, I had grown long hair, and uh-huh. it sounded like a long uh, back when I had hair. <laughs> and <it sounded> like <laughs> we can all sing song, yes. And it sounded like a very long commitment um, with the multiple years. And so I just went home, worked full time, went to school full time, majored in criminal justice was gonna to go to law school, but I i made, it was in Boca Raton and IBM hired me as a co-op student, making a very nice, they paid security guards very well and then they offered me a full-time job in Rochester um, with all kinds of overtime and like Sundays was double time and I was on second shift times 10. So making more than like what you could make in a professional job. Mm-hmm. And they told me they were trying to hire talented kids to go do other things and they'd teach you how to program. And so uh, within a year I was managing uh, security people and pretty soon thereafter I had to s- start teaching myself to code and I went to a number What year of, was that? That was 1981-82.
0: Why did you care about coding in 1981-82? Because 82. I was that at IBM
3: and I knew that was going to be a path out to- Out of? Of doing hourly work and uh-huh. on the, I wanted to be a professional and I could see where that came from and so I've all given
0: you that what had given you that vision Was was there people were there people you had seen in your life who I
3: have so many people that have well my dad uh, who I lost early when he was seven uh, when I was seven years old he uh. passed away and he had his own business yeah and he had a suit that he'd wear to work every day, and we'd go pick him up into one family car, and I was like, I want an office like that, and I wanna, uh, I wanna wear a suit. Unfortunately, by the time I, and I wore suits early in my career at IBM, but by the time where we are now, nobody wears suits anymore <laughs> for the most <laughs> part. But, um, so I always wanted uh, to be, I thought if I could be a manager, that would be so cool, I love people. And so I took every job in the early days that nobody else wanted. So one of those was being a computer security hacker back Hmm. in 1983. After you learned to code? Yeah. And uh, the job was open and my boss wouldn't let me do it. He goes, you're not qualified. And I'm like, nobody else is doing it. I'll do my, I'm doing my regular job. Let me do this one. Oh, get out of here, Web, and, you know, um, I'd knock on his door the next week and say, I, I can do that for free. I'm not asking for a promotion. Just let me do the job. And was that the the white hat hacker who basically yes. comes in yeah, yeah. And, and tries, tries to, to find, find yeah. weaknesses in the yes. system before the real bad guys do yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we didn't even call them white hat hackers back then, but <laughs> exactly. And I... Uh, finally, somebody from corporate, I had done another project, and he thought I was pretty good. And he said, give that web kit a chance. And so within about a year, I was traveling all over IBM. They'd send me out for a week and say, go see what you can break, which was pretty amazing. Right? Yeah. And Did you break anything good? I broke a lot. I've cut <laughs> checks for more than you can, I gave them all back, which is how I kept in my career. But, um, <laughs> um, and. Then I got asked to take a job back in Florida, in Boca, during the heyday. They were losing truckloads of PCs, uh, and they didn't know they were stolen. And the police would call um, because Boca was a little bit of the wild, wild west back then, and IBM, and they asked me to come be the guy that tied all their systems together and make sure they had financial accuracy. Mm-hmm. Again, I had no background in that, but I did it and won all kinds of awards for that. And, my next job was being a product guy at a local area network. After I got through IBM and got hired, left IBM and went on to that, I did a product management job where I'd never been a product manager before. <laughs> so I just keep doing jobs that I wasn't qualified to do. Tell me more about <coughs> your... I don't know if that's helpful, but... It is,
0: it is. But tell, tell me more about your family and your upbringing because uh, something like losing your dad at seven has to... Um, have an enormous impact on you, your, your outlook on what you wanna do and, and where you set the bar, um, your feelings about the family that you have that right. remains, your goals. How did you process that? And what was the home life like that, that kind of motivated and shaped this kid who was willing to push beyond what you were asked to do and what you felt, into what you felt like needed to be done?
3: Well, I had an amazing mother and I wish she were still around. And it devastated us. You know, we had five kids. We went from fairly well off. He left no life insurance to really having a hard time when our water heater broke. We couldn't replace it for years, so I took showers at at school. And (coughs) at least I played sports, so I got the good showers. Mm. (coughs) And um, you went from dreams to knowing it was gonna be on you to make anything work. But my mom instilled in all of us an unbelievable work ethic and worked to keep us humble and also told us we could do anything, Hmm. but we were going to have to do it on our own. She couldn't help us. But then she went back and became big in the school system and was the teacher of the year for the state of Florida Um, And so she became accomplished in her own right. We watched that happen. But we were pretty like I know you have young kids. I would say we probably had way more freedom than we probably should have. (laughs) Uh, And but I came out of there with a lot of drive. Yeah. And I didn't want to ever leave my family in the same place my dad left me. Sure.
0: Um, Fast forward and and we've talked about um, graduating from school, getting started at IBM, and kind of pushing for more responsibility. The first thing, the first entrepreneurial effort that you pushed for, what was it? What, what did you want it to be?
3: Well, when I was, before I got to IBM, and I was working my way through school, mm. I uh, was working at a nursery called Patrick's Nursery in West Palm Beach, Florida. Plants <clears throat> and or they were, kids? Hmm? Plants or kids? Okay. (laughs) Yeah, and and, and by the way, it's pretty uh, tough work because you have black plastic on the ground and you're picking plants up and delivering them and everything's beating down, but the Patricks were really good to me and all that good stuff. But I thought they were a wholesale company and I, I told them that I would, on weekends, do a retail shop for them. And so they let me create a retail Business that we would put signs out and advertise and have people come in and buy plants at twice What we sold wholesale so we didn't get any any channel conflict and so I did that for a couple of years Which was pretty awesome, huh? While then, I was in college
0: and then a- after that in tech What was the first entrepreneurial effort?
3: I would say um, Wow, I've done so many I think that um a more recent one is at my advanced age, I created a company from scratch, not my wind funding I created from scratch, which was fun, right. but I also created Everwise, which was a mentoring company based on an idea I had and I had to find a CEO and that was a lot of fun, but we did that just a few years ago. But I think <clears throat> what I tried to do, it's all on how you define entrepreneurial, but I was always trying to break records Hmm. Like in IT, we did, in 1995, we did the world's fastest SAP implementation in a big bang way and got recognized by the Smithsonian. And we, you know, it was just, most people were failing those days and trying to do it. It sounds kind of normal to do it today, but back then people were blowing up as they were trying to do it. And to do it from start to finish in nine months was pretty amazing. Yeah, SAP,
0: you know, the systems that help you actually Run, run the, the pieces company, yes. of your yeah, yep. business. And if you could get that right, the idea being you could be Even so booth. efficient, yes. you'd be able to race ahead yep. of everybody else. Um, you were chairman at Yahoo Yes. during a period of time where the headlines were fast and furious. Uh, Marissa Meyer uh, was the CEO for part of that time yep. under intense scrutiny. For all
3: my time at being chairman, she yes. was
0: CEO. Um, that's not a, a time when you are dealing with a founder, but it is a time when you're dealing with somebody who's trying to reinvent. Absolutely. And kind of refound. Well, I in think it's way,
3: way, way harder than starting from scratch and doing something. Why right? is that? Why is well, it harder? Well, because you've already hit. Uh, you have a lot. Well, you have more assets, for sure, than you do when you're starting a company. Uh, Jerry Yang had done a beautiful thing and invested in Alibaba and but that is now worth way much, way more than your base business. And by the way, your base business hasn't grown, and you have Facebook and Google that have blown way past in growth. So, how are you going to reignite that growth while at the same time you have the investors that want the tax relief from this big investment that gets bigger, you know, and, and worth? So it was a complicated, but you had a lot of assets there and a lot of good people and a great leader, so. Um, sometimes you say hindsight is 2020,
0: but in this case, I don't even know if hindsight is that clear. Even looking back now, what we know about how social has developed, how mobile has evolved, you know, things in the cloud, what could you do if you're taking over Yahoo at that stage to, to help it out of that rut it was in and, and help it to grow.
3: Well, I think that's why we hired Marissa, because we felt she was a visionary product leader that had made a lot of impact, and she certainly introduced a lot of good new products, bought some companies, and we're taking a run, but um, the path was pretty steep, and we just ran out of time and felt we had to sell the, the core business and separate out the uh financial assets from the core business and that's what we ended up doing
0: now it's part of verizon and not under the same kind of scrutiny and yeah
3: uh, yeah um
0: they're they're managing that in a different way ebay when the e-commerce revolution first kicked off people looked at ebay and said now that's the perfect business model yeah uh lots of profit don't have to mess with that. No inventory. Yeah, yeah logistics totally. stuff and inventory. eBay versus Amazon. What, what was it like? Um,
3: it was amazing. Yeah. Actually, super energizing. And we were, well, I started once they hit a few technical problems mm-hmm. that I was the person Meg brought in to try to, and my team to make sure that we don't have the site crash <laughs> frequently and uh, stunt our growth. So it was pretty hard work in the early year or two to actually make sure that that was a non-event, right? And what year was that? I joined in 1999. 1999. And uh, we had to work all day the uh, New Year's Eve because we were certain, you know, I had asked when I joined, do we have a Y2K problem? No, all our codes knew. Turns out we had a massive Y2K problem. (laughs) We kept the site up. But we were certain it was all gonna blow up on that day and it blew up other times frequently. And so we finally got that fixed and that we didn't have a lot of time to understand how good things were because we were just working all-nighters to try to keep everything glued together and get ahead of the scale issue, which we did. But it was it was such a beautiful time because we were growing so fast and we learned about community. We were breaking new snow. We were doing things nobody in the world had ever done before. Mm-hmm. And how can that not be fun, right? right? But then we have to figure out, when I started, I think we had a couple of hundred people in the company when I left, 14 or 15,000, and countries all over, and we had bought PayPal, and uh, I'd become the COO. It was, it, the day didn't go by that it, we didn't just have a blast. Mm. And there were tough moments in there, but it was a lot of fun. Kind of similar to
0: Meg Whitman. Meg isn't known primarily as a
3: founder. No, she came in after Pierre. Pierre brought
0: her in. Yeah. And and then she went into HP. Now she's working with. She's a founder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right on this on this uh, video venture, but. is there something of the founder mindset, even if you're not technically the founder of the organization totally. that you're in? If you're a leader or even if you're an influencer I think that you can get
3: absolutely out of this book, book that you've written? This book covers from the idea, which founders have, to making it relevant, which means the world wants it, and scaling it, which is making it big, right? That's not about being the founder, it's scaling it. Mm. And then creating a legacy company uh, HP legacy company, hopefully Salesforce legacy company, hopefully eBay. that you're going to be around for generations, right? So certainly that will be helpful for people at any of those stages. But I also think, um, whether it was Meg, Marissa was engineer, first female engineer at At Google. Google. Meg joined when there were less than, I think, 60 people in eBay very early and was their first CEO there, you know, in the founding ethos. And I can tell you that both of them operate pretty much like founders with the way they think and the way they try to go do things.
0: Uh, You you mentioned Salesforce, that's the company I didn't mention that you're on the board of. Um, Mark Benioff, we found out uh, a few days ago, has, with his wife, bought Time Magazine. Uh, which is another
3: brand that I suppose needs to be recounted. in some uh, ways. I, I, well, I think they're doing very, very well. Uh, I think it's awesome, and I'm happy for Mark and Lynn that they're investing in that iconic global brand. Mm. Fascinating.
0: Um, how Have you talked to him about that? I mean, Silicon Valley during certain periods has gone through being sort of allergic to content. You know, it's not as scalable as tech in some ways, but that's changed over time.
3: We've had communication, and what I do know is that there is no connection to Salesforce on this. This is a personal investment that is being managed by their family, and I think they'll be great stewards of this iconic brand.
0: Um, What does it say about the kind of impact that Silicon Valley founders, entrepreneurs, this tech, uh, wealth and capital that has been created, the impact it can have on the world when uh, the likes of a Benioff or a Bezos or yeah. or others can invest in these communication brands and sort of shape the way information is gathered, dispersed, the, the view that people have on the world.
3: Well, frankly, I don't know what drove Mark to want to own this and hopefully he'll come on your show and tell you why he wanted to do that. Um, But what I can say is that many of the folks in tech feel an obligation to help do good things in the world. You know, that's why we get jazzed about building new products and new capabilities. And then when you do that, we have to make sure that it's used for good things in the world. So I think there's something that ties to all that. Um, Final thought, Uh, if I'm going to read
0: one section of this book that you feel like is advice you wish that you had had at a crucial point in your career, where would I flip to? I
3: would, I would go to uh, when you need to find synchronicity. Okay. When I need, and, synchro- need to find and the reason is there's always more things that can happen if you're open to them. And I, I tell a story there about how I was assigned to try to fix the culture at eBay, Uh and I got off the rails a little bit with how I started it, and it blew up, but then I found a book that changed my life and uh, changed Meg's in my life, and then we redid it together. What book was that? It was called Radical Change, Radical Results by Kate Ludeman, um, who was an executive coach kind of person, Uh, and I walked around with a massive chip on my shoulder from my background, which you brought up today, And I never talked about it, and I never uh, was, I wasn't that inspiring. I was a get-stuff-done person that was in the trenches and made it all happen. And I I had to learn that there was much more of me that I should do.
0: Thanks again to Maynard Webb, Scott Galloway, and CNBC's own Robert Frank. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X dot com slash YouTube. And as a matter of fact, you can go to YouTube now and see video of these conversations. Or you can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV and find Fort Knox in the featured areas. And if that's not enough, follow me, John Fort, on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Weigh on on the issues we discussed on Fort Knox. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or fortknox.com. And, as always, thank you for lending an ear.